your Bible to Ephesians 4, and as you do, um, uh, I want you to look down at verse 26, just two verses tonight again. Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil, the diabolos. Do you like roller coasters? So uh, recently, uh, I was strapped into one. And uh, I do like theme park rides, um, uh, you know, the gentle, uh, slow-moving rides that don't make me sick. Uh, I get motion sickness. Um, years ago, Becky and I and were with the kids in the Mall of America in Minneapolis, and we took the kids. Uh, it has an amusement park in the middle of the mall, and we decided to get uh, on this little ride. It had these little tiny airplanes, and all the airplane did was it would go up and down, and it would go around in a circle, and it would go so slowly that if you fell out onto the ground, it is impossible that you could be injured. It was that slow. And we were going around in a circle, and at one point, she and Melanie were in, were in, were in front of me. She turns around and looks, and I must have had some look on my face, and she goes, are you actually sick on this ride? I'm sorry, I'm spinning around. The reason I didn't do well in science class is because when I was a boy, I got on the swing, you know, you, you'd spin the, the chains and make the chains spin, and then you let go, and it just spins you around. First time that happened, I got sick. I realized I can't be an astronaut. There's no point in listening to this class any longer. But I do like roller coasters, but I, I don't like roller coasters that don't have warning signs if it's going to have motion sickness. Uh, of course, you know, if you like roller coasters, I guess the the only kind of roller coaster you really like are the roller coasters that stay on their tracks. <laughs> if the ride is zipping along at high speeds, and a high speed or roller coaster may be 60 miles an hour, I don't know if they get that fast. But if it comes off the track, I think we can all agree that's a problem. If it jumps the track. But can I tell you that's how it is with our emotions? In fact, sometimes when we use the talk about emotions, we talk about a roller coaster, right? People have those roller coaster emotions. They go up, they go down, they zip along at high speeds. And it's fine because God gave us our emotions. We should be emotional people. Uh, one writer actually talks about the way that people deal with their emotions improperly. And he, he says there are two extremes when dealing with the emotions. That, that one extreme is simply to spit everything out. He says, you just, you know, if life's, whatever's going on in your life, you just spew it out all over everybody else, right? But he said the other way people deal with their emotions is just suck it all in. You just keep it all inside, all bottled up. And he, he said, really, both of those extremes are not the biblical way of handling emotions. Emotions are a tool that God gave you. It's something that God instilled in your spirit. And that's where emotions are. And that's why we feel joyful or fearful or grief or love or loathing. These are our feelings. And they're not necessarily right or wrong feelings. They just are. And, and as long as our emotions remain on their track, okay, like a roller coaster, that it's actually helpful that we have them. It's when our emotions fly off of the track like an out-of-control roller coaster, that they can call injuries, cause these injuries, and sometimes harm people irreparably. Like an emotionally strung-out mom who lashes out at her preschooler at a grocery store because he wants to buy a candy bar. Or a stressed husband 
who's having difficulty at work and comes home furious at his wife over what she prepared for dinner. Teenage boy who punches a wall in the gym at school because people have been making fun of him. Or the teenage girl who cries herself to sleep at night because one of her friends has commented something about her on social media. These out-of-control emotions strangle us with one hand and try to lash out at other people with the other. They hurt us and they hurt others. So let me be clear. Emotions are not the problem. There's nothing wrong with being emotional. Like a roller coaster, emotions can keep life interesting and they provide for us a certain level of security. It's not a bad thing to be afraid of bad things, right? That's not a bad thing. It's not a negative to loathe things that should be rejected. And it's a good thing to be joyful. And it's, and you should grieve when you go through grief. Emotions are God's gift to us. But the curse of sin since the fall has changed the controls of our emotions and removed the good limitations that God gave to them so that now we all can sometimes spin out of control. Emotions that fly off of the track keeps uh, actually, um, they, they go out of check and they become sinful emotions. So anger, it's a powerful emotion. And righteous anger can become easily sinful when the anger is not controlled. So let's think about what it is to be like Christ in our anger. Now, if you look at chapter 4 again, you, rem you remind you, let me remind you that verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, is kind of the center of this passage of Scripture. What Paul is talking about is how to walk in a way that adorns the gospel, that it's a worthy lifestyle. It's a way in which what we do actually pleases God. And it, that way that pleases God is how believers have learned Christ. And so what we learned in Christ is at salvation, the old man died. We put off the old man. And at salvation, we put on the new man. But just because the old man died, and just because we're being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and just because the new man came alive in Christ when we got saved, doesn't mean that everything changed. It means that though we are alive in Christ, Though the old man's dead and the new man is alive, there are still old man behaviors that should have no part of the Christian life. And the first old man behavior we looked at was, was lying. We shouldn't lie. We should tell the truth because we are members one of another. The very next uh, phrase that we find in the text is that we should not be sinfully angry. Now, when you remember what Paul has just written about being members one of another, and within the context of the larger theological issues involving Ephesians, which is the idea that both Gentiles and Jews are part of the body of Christ, that is, the Christianity is not a Jewish religion, Christianity is not a Gentile religion, and, and now I would say even broader than that, it's not a white religion, it's not a black religion, it's not an Asian religion, it, it's, it is no ethical boundaries, it has no gender boundaries, uh, women, men, uh, rich, poor, no matter your status, everybody, we are all one in Christ. And within a church construct, then lying to each other breaks that body apart. So does sinful 
anger. It breaks apart the body of Christ. So I want to think about what it is to be Christ-like in our anger, and this brings me to my first point. We must be angry against ungodliness. Now you see the command here is clear. Be angry. Look at verse 26. Look right down the text. What does he say? Be angry. You, you be angry. Christians should be very angry people. The mind, verse 23, that is renewed is angry at the same things at which God is angry. Now, you, let me give you some examples of this word from the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, the Septuagint. Okay? In Deuteronomy 29, verse 27, the text reads in Greek that God is angry, it's our same word, against idol worship. God is angry against idol worship. So should we be angry against that. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 20, God is angry at covenant unfaithfulness. He made a covenant with Israel. They agreed to the covenant, to the blessings and cursings, but then they were unfaithful to that covenant. And the book of Judges, Samuel says, God is angry at that unfaithfulness. In 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 9, God is angry specifically at Solomon because he turned away from following the Lord. In, in Psalm 106 and verse 40, the, the psalmist says, God is angry at Israel's sin in doing the same th sins that the Canaanites around them were doing. Do you see the point, friends? If I can explain this to you, it's simply this. God is angry at sin. And if God is angry at sin, we should have the same emotional energy in being angry at sin. The inference here is anger against sin. In fact, anger is justified when it's angry against sin. So if you look through all the passages on God's wrath or God's anger, do you know what you discover? God is angry and he hates injustice. God hates immoral behavior. God hates pride. He hates a haughty look. God hates drunkenness. God hates the abuse of the weak and the infirm. And that's how Jesus was angry. Can I tell you, you, you start reading through the Gospels, Jesus was pretty angry sometimes. I mean, he went into the temple. He actually made himself a little whip out of ropes. And he started throwing over the tables of the money changers there. He, he took all of the cages where they kept the livestock and he threw those down and then he took his whip and he beat those animals out of that temple. And he said, this is a house of prayer. You've made it a place of merchandise. And, and it's, not that, it's not that they were selling something. It's that they were actually using it as a business. And Jesus was angry against that. And so anger against ungodliness is justifiable. Can I just tell you something, friends? Christians, it's time we became angry against sin. And the first application of that anger should be against ourselves. We should learn to hate the sins that we commit. We should hate it when we get arrogant or proud. 
We should get angry with ourselves when we say an unkind word. When we speak out of turn. We should be angry when we think wrong thoughts and tolerate that. We should be angry when we're unjust. We should be angry when we say something that hurts other people's feelings. You see, folks, that anger has to start with us. We have to be angry at our sin. And then I think once we do that, then we can turn and look at others and say, we're angry at sin. So angry because that's how God is angry. Now, this comes with a warning. Because even though anger against ungodliness is justifiable, even mandated, justifiable anger still must be controlled. If you go back to that roller coaster illustration, it's fine if the anger against sin that you have is really moving fast, but don't ever let it jump the track. As soon as it gets off track, people are going to get hurt because now it's not controlled anger like Jesus had. It's out of control anger. So this is my second point. Justifiable anger must not become an uncontrolled emotion. Justifiable anger must not become simple anger. And that's the transition you see again in verse 26. Look at the text. Be angry, sin not. Now that command to be angry then is modified with the common word for sin. Hamartano, the general word for sin, means to miss the mark. It's the one used in Romans 3.23. You know, we use that, we talk about that verse in the Romans Road. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It just means to miss the mark. Uh, it's not a mistake. It's not an error. That was kind of how the Greeks and the Romans looked at that word. It, it's not just a mistake. The way that it's used in the Bible is that it is a willful violation of God's law. And so we have in the text then the negation, the not is given here. And it, and it just is coordinate to that word sin. Be angry, but sin not. Or we would say it in our more modern English, don't sin. Okay, be angry, don't sin. And that's why the word for anger is an imperative verb. It's a command, but the negation is that it should never become sinful anger. So even while I'm angry at the sin, I have to be very careful that that anger doesn't jump the track and now I'm angry at something that isn't necessarily sin. And now my anger is just kind of spewing out of me like a volcano that's erupting. Or like a bomb. It just explodes. And it just hurts people in the explosion. I don't know how many times... I've heard Christians refer to their anger as righteous indignation. Let me tell you about my experience playing baseball. Uh, I wanted to be in Little League. I had pretty good eye-hand coordination. I wanted to be in Little League. My, my Little League coach was upset with me because I walked all the time. I, I would have been glad to swing at a pitch. They just weren't ever over the plate. So, you know, um, he said my batting average was really terrible. That was because he factored in all the walks as if, as a, as a, as a, as not a, and at bat. I said, you know, I got out a couple times, but most of the time I ended up on third base because as soon as you got to first, you could steal second and third because nobody could throw it straight. So, you know, not in Little League, at least the teams we played. And so, you know, I got home half the time, but I, I remember 
we were playing a game, and our our uh, coach, he was a professor at Clemson University, and a uh, political science professor, great guy, and loves the Lord, no doubt. But he he was not good at being in uh, competition, okay? And uh, so I don't know what the umpire did in that game. I don't remember the scenario at all. This is the only thing I remember. I was young, but I do remember this. He completely lost it on that umpire. I mean, he was red in the face, spittle is just coming out of his mouth. Like it, it looks, it looks like one of those sprinkler systems you sometimes see in lawns. You know, that's kind of how it was. Just this, you know, spit coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are bulging out of his head, and veins are popping out on his face. He had just. He, he was agitated, he was sweating, and he was screaming at that umpire. Now, have you ever seen that in professional sports? People do that. You know, the that, that happens, okay? But Little League, I mean, you know, come on. But this is where we were at, and our coach completely lost it on that umpire. Just lost. Well, the game ended. I don't know, however many, half an hour, hour later, game came to an end. We all got together. I, and we were all sitting on the grass, having our juice box, you know, and our half an orange, our orange slices and our juice box. And uh, he goes, now I need to talk to you all about uh, righteous indignation. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. I, did, I didn't even know what the word indignation meant. All I kept thinking is, man, you lost your temper. I've seen that. I know what that looks like. And it wasn't righteous. It was just full-blown, lost your temper. That happens. That's when that emotion gets off the track. Now, let's say he's right. Let's say, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was a called third strike that was clearly a ball. Maybe it was a play at one of the, one of the bases where it, was a, where it was safe and it was called out. I, whatever it was. Let's just say that that was true. Does that justify completely losing your temper? And the answer is always no. Never. I, I used to uh, sit and watch a friend of mine's dad uh, sit in his chair. He would sit there in his, uh, uh, well, he would pull his dark socks up to his knees, but he, he would not necessarily always be wearing his pants. This, he, it was all boys in the house, okay? But we, it would be weird looking. And he would sit there and eat cereal with his legs crossed and his, and his shiny dress shoes on, you know, and his T-shirt. You get the image here, and he's sitting there eating his bowl of cereal and watching the Braves and just be yelling and screaming at the TV, just completely losing it at the TV. I can tell you this. I can give you a hundred stories like that about other people. I can give you about a thousand like that about me. And you probably can too about you where you've lost your temper, where you've lost your cool, where the train jumped the track and your emotions were out of control. We shouldn't be angry out of control. Anger, in order to be justifiable, must be controlled. And here we have Paul, and he puts two limitations on anger. Two limitations. Look again at verse 26. Be angry, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Justifiable anger cannot simmer over time. Now, Paul is actually citing Psalm 4. I want you to just keep your finger here. Let's go back to Psalm 4 and see the citation that Paul makes. In Psalm chapter 4, the fourth Psalm, 
Look down at the fourth verse. I'm going I'm to read beginning in verse 1. Look down at the fourth verse. Hear me when I call, O God of my, of my righteousness. When you have enlarged me, when I was in distress, have mercy upon me. Hear my prayer. Okay, so he, the psalmist is in distress. He's calling, he's praying to God. O sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? So obviously people are doing something to him, right? Verse 3, but know the Lord has set apart himself that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I called him. So he's saying, okay, I, Lord, hear my prayer. People are hurting me, and I know God will hear my prayer. Look at verse 4. So stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Now, when you read that, the Hebrew word translated stand in awe is the idea of being disturbed or even enraged. In, in fact, um, the idea of the word is, to, is trembling. It means to be agitated, to be roused up to the point that someone shakes. The, the word translated is translated as rage in Proverbs 29. Uh, it's used that way in Isaiah 37 two times. And I think here the teaching in Psalm 4 is he's saying, um, be angry and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. And the teaching here in Psalm 4 is that one should consider his feelings on his bed. We use an expression about this, don't we? Sleep on it. You know, you're gonna, you've had trouble at work. You're going to write an email. It's, gonna be, it's a hard email to write. And so you type it all out, and you're just, boy, you're, you're on fire. You type out that email. You've got a lot of good zingers in there. You get done, you go to hit send. You know what? Mama always told me before I put that letter in the mailbox, before you hit send, just give it some time. So you say, I'm going to sleep on it. You go to bed. Next morning, you get up and start reading going, oh, I'm so glad I didn't send this. Delete, 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 delete. And dear boss, you're a great person. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sleep on it. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul, he's taking it one step further. He's saying there is a time limitation that your anger is allowable, even righteous anger. One day. One day. If you're angry and it's longer than a day, it's not justifiable anger any longer. Now, I'm not talking about anger against sin and the next day you're angry against the same sin. I understand that. But the anger that's directed in the moment at, at some individual or something, that anger... He says, you get a 24-hour deadline, and then that anger has to be gone because you have to learn to temper your feelings. Those emotions cannot be allowed to control you. So anger should be end by sundown. By the time you're going to sleep at night, the time should have elapsed where your anger should be passed. So in other words, you cannot be angry longer than a day. And if you're still angry at the end of the day, then you can mark it down. This is not righteous anger any longer. Now, I'm, he's not saying it's an expression, end of the day, uh, sundown, right? It's an expression. So you say, well, what if I get angry and it's 11.55 at night? Okay, well, you understand what he's saying here. It's already sundown. I, I, what am I going to do? No, no, no. He, he's just saying, okay, don't let it go another day. 
Yeah, it's almost the new day. Okay, fine. But don't let it go. Don't let it linger. Don't let it go on. Not only that, he gives a second limitation. So the first one is, don't let it go longer than a day. Second limitation is, be angry, verse 26. Now jump to verse 27, but don't give place to the devil. Now it's important that Paul uses the term devil in this context because the word devil, notice he doesn't say don't give place to Satan, but I think he is talking about Satan here. And why does he use the word devil and not Satan? Why does he use that name for Satan? He is using it as a proper noun here. If you go back and you read through the New Testament, all the times that this word diabolos is used, you'll find that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the diabolos. The diabolos is the one who entered into Judas when he went and betrayed Jesus. The lake of fire, Jesus said, is prepared for diabolos and his angels. Uh, Paul refers to the wiles of the, of the diabolos. He says that this diabolos, he has a snare, he has a trap for Christians that he's our adversary, that we should resist him. Later, Michael, the archangel, will fight against him. And at the end, the diabolos is cast into the lake of fire. Why is he using this word diabolos? And the answer is this. The word devil means slanderer. Or sometimes we say a false accuser. And that actually makes sense to me. Because think about it when you're angry. What are you open to when you're angry? You're really open to suggestion when your emotions are are on the surface. When your emotions are controlling you, you're really open to listening to something that will confirm how you're feeling. I'm feeling a certain way. Now I'm looking for confirmation about how I'm feeling. What happens to us when we allow anger to fester in our hearts is that we're prone to listening to the slanderer falsely accused those against whom we are angry. So that we end up saying, well, yeah, I bet she did do that because that's how she is always. Or I just know he's to blame. I had a feeling he was guilty. No one can trust him. And we begin slandering. No, we don't slander. We listen to the slander. <laughs> a few years ago, Callaway, it's a golf club manufacturer. Callaway came out with a golf club called the Diablo. I, I, I was just laughing when I saw it. I was playing with a guy. All of his clubs said Diablo. And I thought to myself, you know that word, right? Diablo? Yeah, no. I mean, see, in their mind, it means fire on fire because it's the, the devil. And, you know, you get like the Diablo sandwich at Hardee's or something. It's going to be a, a real spicy sandwich. Okay, so that's kind of how we're looking at it. But actually, the word Diablo here means slanderer. And I said, why would anybody ever want a golf club that's going to slander him? I mean, you know, you, you get up, you hit your shot, it kind of trickles into the woods, and you look down at your golf club, and a little mouth appears and says, you are a terrible golfer. <laughs> you are really bad. Your swing is bad. You really should spend your money somewhere else. You are really wasting your money. You are a terror. Why would you want that? And then I'm looking, and every single golf club in your bag is slandering you. No wonder you're having a bad time of it. I don't want a golf club like that. But at the same time, let me just say, our anger must be controlled, being time-limited, but it has to be tempered by rational judgments of what we know to be true about other people. Because if you don't temper your anger, then you give Satan the opportunity to whisper into your ears things that are not true. And let me tell you exactly how it happens. 
you that are married. You get in a fight with your wife. I'm sorry, discussion with your spouse. Do you all get into those sometimes? You get into a discussion with your spouse. And the discussion is going on, and then you start thinking. And the thoughts come back from times, other discussions come back to your mind. You're thinking about those. And it's not an audible whisper, but you start hearing the slanderer in your ear. You really need to not trust him. He's not trustworthy. Why do you even love her? Look at her. She's a hag. She's just angry and, man, she's frothing at the mouth. This is, what's that proverb say about dwelling in a, in a big house with an angry woman? I, what? None of that's true. But you're listening to it. I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is the kind of anger that destroys marriages. This is the kind of anger that destroys households. And if you don't temper your anger, if you don't close it off quickly, if it's not justifiable, then you run the risk of opening your ears to Satan himself, who's going to lie. He's going to lie all day because that's what he does. And, and at that point, he now has a foothold in your heart. A little place that you've given him against that person, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a church member, whether it's a child, whether it's a parent, whatever it is, he's got that foothold there. And he can come back and whisper those little words into your ears all the time and poison your mind against that individual. Be angry only against sin. Don't let your anger become an opportunity for Satan to slander other people and don't listen to him or your anger becomes sin. And when that happens, you see the roller coaster jumps the track and now people get hurt. I was reading about the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad ride at Disneyland in California. This wasn't that long ago. In 2003, there was a disaster zone there because the train jumped the track, it derailed, and it killed a man and injured 10 others. The news report read like this, Disneyland ride, I'm sorry, Disneyland rider dies in roller coaster accident. That was the news report in the newspaper. Can I tell you, this is how the news report might read on your life if you're not careful with your emotions. Husband divorces his wife after her anger derails their marriage. Adult child no longer talking to his parents because his anger is out of control. Church members estranged because their anger destroyed their relationship. You should be angry like Christ, like he's angry. Be angry at sin, but don't let your anger, any kind of anger, even the good kind, be out of control. Let's pray. Lord, 
use this in our lives to help us understand.